I think there's a lot more evidence in Scripture of a change in God. But what changes is not God's nature. What changes is God's experience, a relationship. I think God, for instance, always loves everyone all the time, and that never changes. But the way that God loves us changes moment by moment because we and our world change moment by moment. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Exvangelical Podcast, where being labeled a heretic is a good thing, if it means refusing to conform to toxic, harmful expressions of faith. We address your questions about God, politics, how we got here, and how to move forward. Nothing is off limits in our conversations with scholars, spiritual seekers, and activists in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. We're your hosts, Melanie and Gary Ellen, and this is Holy Heretics. If you were raised evangelical or fundamentalist, you were told, like most of us, that there's one way to read scripture, one way to conceive of or understand God, one way to think about the afterlife, et cetera, et cetera. But it turns out those topics really just aren't as cut and dry or as black and white as we were taught. And theologians and scholars have debated these things for centuries. And they're going to continue to. So that's why we all need to buckle up for today's conversation. We are joined by Dr. Thomas J. Ord, who is a theologian, a philosopher, and a scholar of multidisciplinary studies. He has written or edited more than 25 books, including one called God Can't, and he directs a doctoral program at Northwind Theological Seminary and the Center for Open and Relational Theology. He also teaches at institutions around the globe, and he's won awards as an author and a professor, uh, but he is most well-known for his contributions to research on love, open and relational theology, which we will be diving into today, science and religion, and the implications of freedom and relationships for transformation. So, woo, welcome, Tom. Thanks for chatting with us today. Thanks for that kind introduction. Well, I'm a little intimidated after that introduction, but that's okay. So, so Professor Ord, we are, as Melanie said, honored to have you. And um, I always get really excited when we have a theologian on the podcast because I'm I'm like a seminary dropout kind of guy. I really wanted to go to seminary and just never did. So um, maybe that's our first question. Um, what led you to dedicate your life's work to theology um, and or what led you into the academy in general? Yeah, I've, I've had the advantage of being raised uh, in a family of people who were trying to follow Jesus, uh, believed in God. So you know, I went to church a ton. My parents were very active and leaders. And so growing up, uh, church was a big part of my life. I like to say I gave my life to Jesus many times as a kid. <laughs> and um you know, I took my faith seriously by at least by high school and college, and I always had questions. <laughs> I think a lot of people do, uh, even people who, uh, as Melanie said in her intro, uh, have been th told there's one right way to think. If you have an inquiring mind, you start to imagine other possible ways, and uh, that was me. I was thinking about other possibilities, not satisfied with at least some of the answers given me in Sunday school or even in the university. And um, I eventually thought that perhaps 
giving my life to helping other people think about those big questions and possible answers might be a worthwhile thing to do. And so that's the course I took. Hmm. So now you focus on what is called open and relational theology, um, which until uh, my good friend of a good friend of mine who is one of your students started talking about it, I had never even heard of that at all. Um, and I was like, what? <laughs> so can you just give us an overview of what that is and maybe try to explain it to me like I'm five because <laughs> <I> love it. <laughs> he's tried to explain it to me and I'm like, I'm still like, uh-huh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I sometimes think of it as like a three-step process, at least for many people, it's a three-step process. People like me who grew up in church, who were taught, uh, taught things about God, it was really easy to think of God as kind of like the big buddy upstairs who, uh, you know, helped you out sometimes, was mad at you at other times and give you a kick in the butt if you sinned. Uh, but, you know, it's just kind of your buddy going along through life. And before long, you start realizing that there are many reasons, biblical and otherwise, to think that God is not just your little buddy. And for many people, that is the, the next step for them becomes a step moving away from God as personal, God as relational, having a God who's outside of time, who's not uh, subject to any emotions, a God who uh, somehow has a plan foreordained from the foundation of the world. And everything is, if not going according to plan, will eventually end up the way God set it out to be. And so that's kind of the second step for many people. And really the position that a lot of academics in history have kind of come to, a God who's outside of time, uh, a God who's totally transcendent, we like to say in theology. Open and relational theology, I think of as a third step. It gets back to thinking of a God who's really personal. The, we like to use the word relational. And by that, we mean God is not only affecting us, not only influencing us, but also influenced by us so that our lives have a make a real difference to God's uh, experience and plans, etc. And then the open part suggests that God experiences time like we do. So instead of being outside of time and looking at all of history all at once, God is like part of the flow of history. And that means the future is truly a future for God, and the past is truly the past for God. And that kind of idea, which may, may sound kind of abstract, uh, is actually pretty radical when you start thinking about questions like, uh, does God know the future? Uh, can God make a mistake? Uh, does God forgive past sin? You know, in the standard model of God's outside of time, God never forgives past sin because it wasn't past for God. So um, there's lots of interesting uh, implications to thinking God is both relational and a part of time, the future being open. Well, yeah, I mean, as you're saying that, I'm like, you know, the the alarm bells are going off in my head like, wow, that like that completely changes how we conceive of God if if that's true. And, and I mean, I, I feel like even hearing that, like God isn't outside of time, like we have always been taught, then how do I even start making sense of 
a God who is part of time like me? I, I don't even know where to start with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, strangely enough, I think it's the most common way God is thought about by the biblical writers. I mean, open relational theologians like to say, we've got most of, if not all of the Bible on our side of this, at least in the terms of God being seen as a real character in history. God being happy when things, when we do well, God being disappointed or angry when we sin, God making plans or covenants, you know, saying, uh, uh, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, yada, 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 I will do X. But if they don't, I will do Y, which sounds like the future hasn't been decided and not even God knows what God is going to do. And our relational responses will really make a difference. Hmm. So I think the first time that I heard the phrase open theism, uh, which is, I think, what we are talking about, um, I think it was about 15 years ago, and it was kind of popularized by Greg Boyd uh, in one of his books, and he really kind of brought it into the mainstream. But um, if, if I'm hearing you correctly, this isn't just a modern construct that— uh, progressive theologians have created, right? I mean, and 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 so maybe I'm going to ask you two questions here. Okay. Um, is is there a, a an ancient tradition of this that you just hinted at? Um, and how do you then potentially talk with someone who would label this? Oh, well, that's just progressive, or that's just kind of a new age thinking, heretical. Um, yeah, or just heretical because, you know, in my conservative world, I've never heard of this before. So maybe a two-part question, how deep-rooted is this concept? And then how could we introduce it to someone who might consider it heretical or apostasy, if you will? Yeah. You know, the idea that God can't know with absolute certainty everything that's going to happen in the future, that's not a major voice in the Christian tradition. Uh, you can find people here and there who hint at it or actually say it, but the vast majority of the major thinkers have not thought of God that way. That's why we all you know, think or are taught that God is outside of time. Now, many open theists think that the God of the Bible is much closer to their position than the way that Augustine, John Calvin, Thomas Aquinas, all these kind of major heavy hitters in Christian theology history have thought about God, and they'll point to lots of passages that many people know but don't really take seriously or just kind of skim over, you know, like uh, take the passage in which Jonah uh, finally comes out of the big fish, and he's going off to Nineveh because he has a message to deliver that the place is going to be destroyed. God tells him, go tell the king of Nineveh that Nineveh is going to be destroyed. And uh, the king of Nineveh hears the news and says, you know, maybe... Maybe if we repent, maybe if we put on sackcloth and ashes, God will have a change of mind and we won't be destroyed. And the book of Jonah ends not only with the people changing their, their own ways, but God repents, says the writer. So God has a change of mind. Things like that are actually quite prevalent in the Bible, but most people don't recognize them or kind of skip over them or just say, well... They're just talking about God in what we in the academy called anthropomorphic ways, talking about God as if God is like a human. But maybe, just maybe, if we start with a loving God 
who's in real relationship with the world, then maybe those kinds of claims about God having a change of mind should be taken straightforwardly rather than thinking that God is somehow outside of time. So how did we how did we get to this point then if if it seems like the biblical writers considered God that way how did we get to this point where it's just assumed i mean i was taught yeah. there's three things about god omniscient omnipotent omnipresent like those are if you if you're talking about a god other than like that doesn't have those characteristics then that's not god kind of thing so how do we get to that point of assuming yeah, and on top of that, we, we were always told that God never changes, right? right. Like, right. God is constant. God doesn't change. Yeah, yeah. I'm in the midst of finishing a book on, on open relational theology, and, and I cite uh, the passage in the Old Testament most often used by people who say God never changes. It's the Lord says, I am the Lord who does not change. And the very next verse says, but if you return to me, then I will return to you, which sounds like God's going to make a change <laughs> if we do something. Uh, so I think there's a lot more evidence in Scripture of a changing God. But what changes is not God's nature. What changes is God's experience, a relationship. Hmm. I think God, for instance, always loves everyone all the time, and that never changes. But the way that God loves us changes moment by moment because we and our world change moment by moment. But to kind of get back to your first question, how do we get here? Um, I think we could point to a number of, uh, uh, number of things that have pushed Christians this direction. One of the biggest ones, though, if we were talking kind of academically for a second, um, there is a kind of philosophy that was dominating for the first thousand or more years of Christian history that really privileged, really emphasized the um, the evil side of change, the badness of change. And so uh, if you think that change is inherently bad, then of course you don't want to describe God as changing. Hmm. And so those philosophical categories, preferences, and assumptions have so influenced Christian theology and even our own thinking today, that uh, we're sometimes blind to what the scriptures, at least at their you know face value reading, seem to say. Hmm. So I'm I'm curious because um, I think I grew up in a faith tradition that basically said, you know, God's got this all taken care of. God's mm -hmm. got the future figured out. Um, we're all going to it someday, float up into heaven. We don't have to worry about things happening right now. Um, God, you know, God's got this. I mean, I Ooh, think yeah. I've seen that bumper sticker, right? Yeah. <laughs> but but if what you are saying is true, if, if the future of the planet, if the future of humanity, if our own personal futures are not yet uh, predetermined, or at least not being manipulated or controlled by God, then that changes how we engage with the space-time universe that we live in. That that changes my role and even, dare say, my responsibility as a human being in, in joining God in creating the future. Um, yes. Would you agree to that? And, and then what does that look like for us as individuals? Yeah. Well, I think there are some Christians who think— saying that God is in control 
means that God does absolutely everything in the world. We call these hard determinists. Everything that happens is exactly what God wanted because God caused it. I don't find that many Christians today who embrace that view, but there are some. More people I know who think that God is in control, think that God doesn't control everybody, gives freedom to creatures like humans, maybe dogs and dolphins. But, <laughs> um, you know, God will make sure the really important stuff of history occurs in the way God wants and will guarantee that the future is exactly how God intends it to be. Whether that means the future is, you know, everybody goes to heaven, all the all the income free, or some people go to heaven and some people go to hell, or, you know, there's all kinds of variations of what we think the future is going to be like. The perspective I find most helpful sounds radical to people, but says not even God can single-handedly decide what the future will be, that you and I and all of creation have a real role to play. Our lives really count. Our choices really matter. Now, when I say that, I, I, I oftentimes will be in an audience and I'll, I'll watch people's body reactions. <laughs> and like <laughs> some people, their shoulders go back and they're <laughs> like, yeah, finally a theology that fits the way I live my life. I know that I make choices and my choices matter. But then there's some people, their shoulders kind of slump and they're like, you mean my choices matter? Oh, that sucks. Um, yeah. And to those people, I want to quickly say, look, the whole world doesn't rest on your shoulders. So don't think that you have to carry the whole thing. But some choices are on your shoulders. And what you do really does matter. And the future is partly decided on how you decide to act. Okay, I'm trying my evangelical brain is trying to process here. Um, yeah, <laughs> one of the one of the questions that I feel like you know, is like that knee jerk reaction is like, well, if God isn't all powerful and doesn't know the future, then how is God different from humanity? Mm, yeah, it's a really good question. And open relational thinkers think there are lots of differences between God and humanity or creation, but there are, God isn't in all senses different. So some people will say, God is not like us in any way, shape, or form. God's ways are not our ways. And they make this really strong claims about how God is totally different from us. Well, if you go down that path, then it's kind of hard to think that God is really anything that we can think or imagine. It's kind of hard to make sense of any claims about God in the Bible or in everyday life. So there's got to be some similarities between God and us. Otherwise, God's never going to make any kind of sense whatsoever. And I would recommend people not believe in God if they think God is that different. But open relational thinkers think that God is different in the sense that, you know, God is everlasting. God had no beginning and had no end. God is present to all creation. You and I are just present in one place and time. God knows everything that's knowable. And we only know a few things. The future isn't knowable by anyone, by the way, so it's not knowledge that anyone could have. But God knows everything that could be known. And so we start making those kinds of distinctions, and God ends up being different. But God is the same as us in the sense of experiencing time moment by moment. Um, and that's going to sound radical to a lot of people. 
Well, I, I actually find this very freeing, especially as it re- relates to um, the notion of theodicy or the mm. problem of evil, uh, mm-hmm. because if we believe that God is in control of everything, if God has predestined all things, if God is manipulating the future and the present, then we we have to also believe that God is the source of evil or mm. that God allowed the Holocaust to happen because, oh, well, sorry, I just kind of predestined that that was going to happen. <laughs> and then and that turns God into a monster, mm. whereas mm-hmm. what you are saying, if if God is not necessarily moving all of these eternal chess pieces around and manipulating everything that's happening, that allows a little bit more breathing room as it relates to why is there evil in the world and why does God allow evil? Is, is that a correct assumption? That's exactly it. Yeah. I mean, that's the reason I wrote the book, God can't that uh, Melanie mentioned earlier. Um, that particular book is written for a general audience that makes the argument that God simply can't single handedly prevent evil in the world. And um, that is good news to lots and lots of people. In fact, I get letters every week from people who read God Can't and say, finally, I don't have to think that God is causing or caused the the miscarriage I had or allowed it or, you know, they just name any sort of thing. In fact, you know what? It's okay if I read a portion of a letter I got. uh, Oh, please do. This one was especially moving, especially for helping people I think um, understand the importance of saying God can't stop evil single-handedly as opposed to saying God won't because God allows it or something like that. So so here goes. This is from a woman. She says, um, so I will tell you a bit about my story. I'm a survivor of sexual abuse a lot and for a long time by my brother. Hmm. In the midst of the worst years of my life, I had a very vivid dream of God walking over to my bed as I was being raped. He simply reached out, held my hand, and cried. For a few short days, I was elated. God hadn't left me after all. Then came the anger. Anger that God was there, and instead of stopping it, He simply held my hand and watched. For a long time, years, I was angry about that. I prayed for a breakthrough, but I never got it, so I buried it. Now, reading through your book, praying and contemplating, I can see more clearly what may have been happening. God could not stop my brother. God gives free will. How would a God help? Would have he stopped him? The reality is that God couldn't, not that he didn't. And for me, this is a complete game changer. So she's getting to the point there that I'm trying to say, you know, people who say God didn't cause the bad thing that happened to you, but God permitted it. That doesn't portray God as particularly loving if God could have stopped it. I think it's better to think that God simply can't prevent evil single-handedly. God requires cooperation in various kinds of ways to to stop evil. Um, Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we have a God who I think is still on the hook 
for the evil of the world. Mm. Well, I think that also is motivating in a lot of ways because one of the struggles I've had is like seeing people who are like, well, God's in control. So if it was meant to be stopped, God would have stopped it or, you know, whatever the argument is. And so like, why do I need to join in the fight against whatever evil it is? Because God's in control. And it's like, that's exactly (laughs) right. I mean, think about it this way. If something's happening, let's say, uh, I don't know, there's, let's say there's a famine in Somalia. If there's a, a famine in Somalia and God has the kind of power to single-handedly stop that famine but doesn't do so, then us trying to feed those people might be going against God's will. Mm-hmm. So like, not only are you not motivated to help God, your you, your helping might be against God's will, and that's that's like really strange to think about. Much better to think that God actually requires our cooperation. Mm. I know that's heavy for some people, but I think it's much more accurate. Well, I was going to ask about God's will next because how can we even talk about that? I mean, the way I was always taught is like we are supposed to seek God's will for our lives, so He has one specific path laid out mm-hmm. for each person and now you're supposed to find that path um and and you know and you agonize over that path yeah right? I, was, exactly. I was gonna say i know i have a friend who like was paralyzed by this idea because it was like how do i find that path i can't couldn't even make a choice because it yep. was like what if that's outside of god's will so how does this change the idea of god's will or can we even talk about it if if we're talking about open and relational theology? I think it changes it for the much better. I think God does have a will for our lives, but it's a general will that we become loving people, that we seek beauty, goodness, and truth in all its ways. So these kind of general categories that we follow Jesus, etc. But the specific ways that we do so, those aren't determined in advance. Those will emerge moment by moment in our ongoing relationships with others. And the good part of that, there's lots of good things, but one of the best things is that when something bad happens to you, you don't have to think that God must have wanted that as part of God's will. You know, imagine you're, uh, let's see, let's say you're in college and you've got a controlling boyfriend who's not good and you're trying to get out of this relationship and you finally do. Well, if you got into that relationship with this boyfriend and things went bad and this, you have to decide, was it God's will that I have this bad relationship? If that's the case, then God seems pretty mean. right? Yeah. <laughs> if it's not God's will and God had a different will in mind, but now that you're off the track that God had predestined, then like you're out in freeform land, you know, you don't know where you're going. You've, mm-hmm. you've gotten off the the, uh, the, prede- the predestined route. So this says God's moment by moment call in your life depends on where you are at that moment, the kind of relationships you've had, your past. And so God's will is general and the specific things you choose to do moment by moment are going to vary depending on where you're at in life. Hmm. 
Well, I've seen this sort of um, tacitly referred to in the climate change and the environmental catastrophe Mm -hmm. that we're living through right now to where evangelicals have said, well, you know, God's in control and... Mm -hmm. And not only that, God's going to burn it up anyways, which right. I think is ludicrous. <laughs> yeah. But it, it it does seem like when you believe, uh, when you don't believe in open theism, you do kind of give yourself a pass, whether it be to help care for the climate or whether it be to be involved in social justice issues or any kind of issue that is, uh, I would say, bringing about the kingdom um, here on earth. Is that true as well? Or, or am I making too yeah, big of an I, assumption? I, that's there? exactly it. That's exactly it. Now what happens, and, and I hear, I want to try to give the most positive uh, spin on the motivations of people, but what happens is sometimes something bad happens. Let me make up something again. Let's say uh, somebody loses their job and they and their partner and children uh, are suffering because of that. So they lose their job. But let's say a year later they get another job and it's even better than their past job. Mm-hmm. So they see something better come out of it and they think to themselves, look, God's the source of all good in the world. I've got this better job. Well, they think, God must have wanted me to lose that job a year ago and go through all that tough time because now things are better. And I want to say to those people, no, God didn't want the bad. God didn't want the evil. But God doesn't give up on things. God continues to work with us in creation to try to squeeze whatever good can be squeezed from the bad God didn't want in the first place. And so, you know, right now with the pandemic, some people are seeing some good things come out of the pandemic. And some of them are saying, well, God must want the pandemic. And I'm going to say, no. No, God doesn't want that. But when things happen, God doesn't give up on it either. God tries to bring whatever good can be brought from the bad God didn't want in the first place. And on climate change, I think we can use that same kind of argument. So can can the notion of providence and open theism um, come together, or, or are they two different things? Yes, they can come together. My, uh, I wrote a book called The Uncontrolling Love of God, and the subtitle is An Open and Relational Account of Providence. But, of course, providence is not going to be the way that you know someone might think of if God, they have a certain view of God's relation to time or power, etc. So there really is a God acting providentially, but not in the sense of predestining or even foreknowing everything. <laughs> Still processing here. <laughs> um, wh- one thing that I, I think a lot of people, at least upon initially hearing something like this, might they might feel fear, uh, mm-hmm. because I think a lot of our comfort came from this idea of like, well, God is in control, and like, I. I I can't remember where it's from. I feel like it's like maybe an Alcoholics Anonymous thing, but the saying like everything will be okay in the end. And if it's not okay, then it's not the end. And kind of that feeling of like, well, someone's out there working to, you know, make everything okay. Um, And, you know, defining okay is a whole different thing. But like, I, I feel like people would be afraid to hear this. So 
how should we, or how should someone who feels afraid hearing that, um, find comfort, I guess? Yeah, no, it's a good, good question. Um, first, let me say most people I know who have been deeply harmed find this perspective refreshing. They're not afraid of it because they can now say the crap that happened to me wasn't caused by God or even allowed. But there are some people who go through really tough times, who can't make sense of it, who find some comfort in the notion that despite their inability to understand it, somehow their you know horrible times are part of God's plan. And so this is going to sound a little fearful perhaps to them. Other people, though, I think, uh, well, I won't go that direction. Let me just stay with this chain of thought. <laughs> um, um, to those people, I say, you know, I, I get why you think it's a comforting view that God is in control. By the way, John Calvin, who's probably the person most identified with predestination and foreknowledge, he saw, he's explicitly said his view is a comforting doctrine. Um, but it doesn't comfort me. <laughs> right. It doesn't comfort me to know that God has predestined the horrors of the world and you know all the atrocities. Um, so I would say to the person who finds comfort in that, uh, be open to the possibility that maybe there's a better way to think. And secondly, and more importantly, I think we should find our comfort primarily in God's love, not in God's power. And the problem with thinking that God is in control is that it almost inevitably leads one to question God's love. But if you start with God's love and you're open to questioning God's power, I think you're likely to find more comfort. I'm not saying it works for everybody, but you're likely to find more comfort in the end. Hmm. What also feels like this is tied to the question that Job's friends asked him. You know, what did you do wrong because you're suffering? And and we even, even though we know that is, you know, been dispelled in Scripture, we still do it today. Mm-hmm. Um, we kind of look around us and go, well, of course I'm blessed and I've got, I've got the good job because I'm good and God's in control and he blesses those who do good. And well, sorry over there if you're poor. Um you know, it's probably because you've done something bad, and so God is punishing you. I mean, open theism just destroys that notion completely, does it not? It sure does. And, and earlier when I said I won't go down that chain of thought, this is where I was going to go. <laughs> I was going to say open theism, I think, is more uncomfortable for those who are in places of power, who are in places of uh, relative lack of suffering those who like the status quo, those who like to be in charge, because this way of thinking says, you know, God not only didn't put you there, God didn't just permit you there because it's some kind of plan. You're mm-hmm. there for various reasons that even God didn't set up or somehow manipulate. And uh, that can be discomforting if you're on top. Or if you think, that God put your president in charge for a specific right. time and place, right? Exactly. No matter who that president is, um, yeah, I think we need to rethink our views of how elections go and God's uh, activity in it. 
I don't think we could ever know for certain that, quote, God's man or woman or person in charge uh, was put there by God. Hmm. So if there was like one thing that you wanted people who are open to the idea of open and relational theology to know, or like one one way to sum it up, what would you what would you say? I think I would say this. Um, I would I would be confessional. What I personally want most in my life is to live a life of love. As I read the scriptures, as I see the life of Jesus, as I think about just what works well in everyday interactions in family and in society, the themes of love come to the top. Love is first in my way of thinking. In fact, it's first in God's nature, and it's our primary response to God and others in our world. And then I would say, open and relational theology can be developed in a whole variety of ways, but I think it best accounts for the call to love in our lives. It makes best sense of those things, not only the way God acts and why there's evil in the world, but the sense of value, the sense of choices we have, the sense of calling we have to live a particular kind of way in the hopes of making our lives and the world better. So if you think about open relational theology as a a way of thinking about God and reality that emerges through concerns like the concerns of love, I think that can help people get their head around. It's it's such a switch though, (laughs) because it it was you know, (laughs) truth was always so emphasized. Um even even as the loving thing, like, well, that person it is living in sin. So if I tell them the truth, then that's loving rather yeah, than, right. yeah. you You know what I mean? So it, it yeah. I'm like, I can feel myself going like, wait, what about truth? And it, yeah. and I, but it goes right back to, you know, the greatest of these is love. And, um, the greatest commandment is love the Lord, your God, and then love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just interesting how those were taught, but like almost sidelined. Yeah, and yeah. and you're saying like no, let's put that back to the forefront and let's make that the emphasis. But exactly <laughs> it's it. just yeah. so different that that like I f- I feel myself going like red flags. This is heresy, which <laughs> is ridiculous. But yeah, um, well, you would be the first person who felt that initially, but who after reflection ended up thinking this is a better way to think. In fact, mm. to use your chi language. This is more truthful than the alternatives. I don't think we have to give up on truth, but what we thought was true may have not been as true as we initially thought, and we can rethink it in a way that makes a lot better sense, Hmm. not only with the way we live our lives, but how we read our Bible. Hmm. Well, I love I love that so much. Oh my gosh. I I feel like I'm just going to like get done here and then just replay this and think about it all over again because it is so mind-blowing for those of us who were raised in that very like here's orthodox and everything else outside of what we tell you is orthodox is you know off limits and scary and bad and wrong so um i want to ask you the question that we ask everybody 
um, which is as someone who is studying a type of theology that really is not accepted by a lot of a lot of Christianity, um, as someone who has wrestled with these ideas and wrestled with the inconsistencies in what's considered mainstream or orthodox by most of Christianity, um, for you, is there anything that gives you hope when you look at the future of faith? Yeah. For me, hope is a verb, not a predecided destination. If you listen to a lot of people who talk about hope, it's their conviction that somehow the end has already been decided. You know, I've seen the end and I know who wins kind of a thing. Um, for me, hope is a verb. It's still in process. And the conclusion depends upon on my response to uh, the call God gives me moment by moment. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not all on my shoulders. It's not all on creation's shoulders. I believe in a God who is active in the world, calling, persuading, commanding, luring, guiding us to a better future, but not one that's guaranteed. It's one that we have to act in response to. So my hope is in a God of love who's active in the world and who, and whose call to whose call creatures respond positively. That that reminds me of, I think, the famous quote attributed to Julian of Norwich when she says, all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. And But I will say that under this understanding, um, it does kind of change the meaning of that a little bit. That we, if we want things to be well in the future, we have to work for good things uh, here in the present. Uh, We can't just sit back and expect God to fix all of our problems and clean up after our mess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. let go and let God. I love it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, well, I think for me, this is really encouraging and empowering because we realize we have a a distinct responsibility to shape the future and to be a part of bringing about the future and working toward it. Um, And I think that's a beautiful mystery. So that's, that's exciting. Mm -hmm. So Melanie said, we had one last question for you. Uh, We, 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 we've changed the future. So that that actually wasn't true. Um, We're, we're, we're open podcasters. So we (laughs) we would love to ask you uh, just some rapid fire questions, if that's okay to kind of end our time together, just to get to know you a bit more. All right. So first question, you live in Idaho. What's the best part of living in that wonderful state that none of us have ever been to? (laughs) Almost two-thirds of Idaho is public lands, forests, deserts, mountains, um, and I explore it an awful lot. It's great to live in a place with so many places I can go and explore. Hmm. I actually have been there, and... It's quite lovely. Have you been to the McCall area? Oh, quite often. Yeah, that's a popular place to go. Goodness. uh, Various times of the year. Yeah. uh, uh, Seven, eight years ago, I started walking in Nevada 
and walked almost a thousand miles to the Canadian border through Idaho. I'm Holy one of cow. seven people to do that. Um, uh, and so I've had the privilege of seeing the state like very few people get to see it. Wow. Hmm. It was like a Forrest Gump moment. <laughs> Except I wasn't running. <laughs> oh, man. That's a lot of miles. Okay. Um, next question. If you had one wish and a magic genie would grant it, what would you wish for? Well, do you want like an abstract one or a very specific one? Oh, this is your wish. This is the problem. Uh, for me, you know, my wish would be that uh, everyone somehow cooperated with God. But of course, if the genie was forcing everyone to do that, they wouldn't be doing it freely, and so it wouldn't be legit. So mm. ah, this is a tough question. It's a conundrum. My one wish. <laughs> well, how about a, I'll give you what I said earlier, a serious wish, and one that I have uh, control over. I wish that I continually cooperate with God's love and live a life of love. Mm. Well said. On a lighter note, what's a talent or a hobby that you have that most of us wouldn't know about you? Uh, I'm a photographer. I um, do a lot of nature photos. I mentioned hiking. Um, and I have my photos in galleries and magazines and things like that. So. That's oh, wow. uh, part of my life. Nice. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. Um, what's something that you wish you were good at, but you're not? I wish I could sing. I've always been a, not even an average singer, a little below average. But if I was a good singer, I probably would have ended up in a rock and roll band and my life would have been <laughs> radically different. But I was in a few bands growing up, never as the singer, though, always as the guitarist. I mm. wish I had a better voice. Hmm. I feel you, you know, there. I, I think, yeah, but I think God predestined you to not have a, a, a good voice just God so will. you could, yeah, yeah, just so you could talk about open theism. That's, that's what happened. If that were true, then I was predestined to talk about something that's erroneous. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> so since the future is wide open, what do you look forward to most uh, in a post-pandemic life or at least a a better pandemic life? How about that? Yeah, I do a lot of speaking uh, literally around the world. I've spoken on every continent but Antarctica. I want to get down there someday to talk to the penguins. Hmm. Um, and it's been kind of a bummer not traveling as much as I used to. And so I'm looking forward to that. Boy, I'm with you on that. My wife yeah. and I were both saying this weekend how we just want to get on a plane and and wake up in a different country. You yeah. know, I just I just miss that so much. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. well, this has been incredible. Thank you so much. Um, you took a very abstract, um, nuanced and 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 dare say new conversation, and you you brought it down to all of us. And I think that's something that most of us are longing for is mm -hmm. we would love to know all of the conversations that are happening in the academy, you know, in these schools of theology that frankly our pastors and our parents don't, aren't talking about, or they don't mm -hmm. know anything about. And so thank you for doing that. Thank you for bridging that gap and uh, awakening us to a different version of 
what it means to be human and, and even a different version of what God is and, and what God does and does not do. So thank you for that. So for anyone who is interested in a little bit more, a deeper dive into open theism, uh, where can they find a little bit more about you and your book and, and maybe even the doctoral program uh, that you direct? Yeah, thanks for saying that. Um, you know, I, I have a personal website. It's my full name, Thomas J. Ord, J-A-Y-O-O-R-D. You can find out more about open theism at uh, the Center for Open and Relational Theology website. Uh, I suspect if you just Google that, it will come up. Uh, you also can find out information about the doctoral program there or at Northwind Theological Seminary. If you Google that. Um, the book that I'm just finished up and will be available this summer is called Open and Relational Theology, an Introduction to Life-Changing Ideas. And it's really written for the average person. It's, uh, you know, I did one of those uh, checks on the, the language and stuff, and it's written at an eighth <laughs> grade reading level. So most people can probably mm. get their heads around eighth grade nice. reading. Hmm. And it's written it for me. Explain. <laughs> It explains these ideas in, in uh, hopefully understandable ways. But maybe as a final point, um, if someone is listening to this who's been struggling with the questions of evil, suffering, and pain, and where's God, um, I really recommend this little book, God Can't, which is also written at a, a lower reading level. Mm-hmm. Well, I will make sure to link to all of that in our show notes as well, so um, listeners can find that in one spot um, and find more information about all of this because you better believe I'm buying that book as soon as it comes out this summer. <laughs> Great, thanks. Um, but yes, what Gary Allen said is so true and we very much appreciate your time, Tom, and um, <laughs> trying to make topics that can seem really lofty um, and heady just bringing them to our level so that everyone can understand and start to consider and grapple with them. Um, I think we need more of that. So thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for the invitation, Melody and Gary Allen. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. Thank you so much. And that's all we have for you today. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And before you go, we'd like to ask you to consider becoming a Patreon patron of this humble little show. It may not seem like it, but it takes hours upon hours to create each episode and get them out to you each week. And whether you knew this or not, it's just me and Gary Allen with my husband, Josh, doing all the editing simply out of the goodness of his heart. So your contributions to the show will not only help us to continue producing quality content, it also gets you access to each show five days early. You get exclusive content and first dibs on merch when we finally get to that point. Every little bit helps, so head to patreon.com slash holyheretics to become a patron. Thank you. This episode was written by Gary Allen Taylor and Melanie Mudge and produced by the Sophia Society. Music is by Faith and Foxholes, and sound levels were mixed by Joshua Mudge.